The greatest danger to the liberal vision are facts about the consequences of liberalism itself and the laws, policies, and ways of life that the left has spawned. That the black family, which survived centuries of slavery and generations of discrimination, has disintegrated in the wake of the liberal welfare state is only one example of how liberalism forces us to embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 226 of Embrace the Void, where things are still going so well... I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're doing a deep dive on arguments over the history of slavery. So, let's make with the social death. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Charles Boyd, a historian, writer, and activist who teaches at Georgia State University and is the host of the Minority of One podcast. Charles, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello to the void. Uh, I am a longtime listener, uh, first time guest, I guess you would say. <laughs> yes, I'm excited to have you on. I Glad came to be across. Here. I enjoy your show, and I came across your discussion in particular about Soul, who we just did a sort of better know, getting to know intro about him, and you had a really interesting debate about. Uh, sort of some of his arguments, and I thought it'd be fun to do a bit of a deeper dive on one of his uh, chapters in particular uh, from his book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Before we get to that, though, do you want to tell folks a bit about sort of where you're coming from and how you ended up focusing on Soul in this chapter in particular? Oh, yeah, sure. So I had had a decent amount of familiarity with Thomas Soul, I would say going back to when I was in high school, uh, because Back, you know, I mean, eons ago now, you know, it seems like we had, uh, we still had physical newspapers, you know, that, you mm. know, that somebody would drop off, you know, at the house. And as I recall, mm -hmm. I'm about 99% sure it was the Atlanta Journal Constitution, but one of the papers that my parents were subscribed to had his column. And uh, so I, you know, I was just flipping through the, you know, op ed section. I would he he would be one of the people that I would come across sometimes, and I I typically didn't agree with him, particularly on race and social issues generally. You know, I was it was it was never somebody where he was never somebody where I would read the columns and be like, oh my goodness, uh, this guy is totally speaking to me. Like I I never really agreed much with him, but mm. I was relatively familiar with you know for somebody of my generation and sort of political bent, I was probably more familiar than most 
with sort of what his arguments were. And then kind of as I got older, I heard soul being invoked a lot in political arguments about uh, slavery and race, uh, sometimes with the assumption that I hadn't read any of his stuff or wasn't familiar with what his arguments were, which not quite. But uh, I had been recently wanting to sort of get back in the, you know, get back into doing some, you know, debates because I, I did, I, I was on a debate team when I was in middle school and I uh, was, mm. I heard that they were sort of through the grapevine that they were looking for somebody, I think preferably with a, with a historian's background to sort of debate the sort of disagreeing with soul side for mm-hmm. a podcast. So I, I put my, uh, I put my, you know, hat in the ring, so to speak. And I had a great time doing that and sort of in preparation for that, I, because most of my reading of Soul prior to that point ha- had been through his columns. So I mm-hmm. read that essay, I believe, uh, The Real History of Slavery. And then mm-hmm. I read, you know, some other, you know, uh, portions of the book. And there, there wasn't much that he said that surprised me in terms of what his views were. I, I, I sort of, I, I had a pretty good familiarity of what his positions were. But mm-hmm. I think that I'm probably better suited now to argue against his stances than I would have been three years ago because I've done more of a deep dive into sort of his more academic writings, you know, as opposed to the shorter stuff that's more for the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, so we'll talk about this chapter, The Real History of Slavery, which, as I said, is from this book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Before we get into the chapter, just for a little bit of context for folks who are not familiar with what all of these arguments are, what would you say is Sowell's sort of overall point of this book? Um, how is it, uh, you know, because I think it's an often cited one in in a lot of these culture war debates. So the book, the the sort of thrust of the book seems to be based on the uh, based on the essay that I read, the essays that I've read in it and the other sort of portions of it that I've read. The basic argument seems to be that there are a lot of problems in this is Soul's position, that there are a lot Mm -hmm. of problems in black culture that are not traceable in any substantive way to the history of slavery in this country. Soul blames them on a variety of factors, which include things like the welfare state, but which he also, uh, he also throws in, and this is kind of where mm-hmm. the title comes from, that he argues that the negative aspects that he sees as common, in, as common to black culture, in his view, mm-hmm. he traces them back to what he calls essentially white Southern redneck culture from the antebellum era. Now, interestingly, from what I can, from what I can tell, he doesn't trace anything positive in black culture, mm. in black culture back to white Southern quote unquote redneck culture. I, I don't love to use the word redneck, but I'm just, I'm using that mm-hmm. sort of in air quotes because that's the term he used. Um, and he but it's interesting because, you know, it's interesting to uh, note here that this argument is prob- uh, specifically about sort of the origins of quote unquote black culture seems mm-hmm. to be potentially one of the less popular aspects of his book on the right. Because, oh, because while the right generally agrees with his critiques of black culture, and while the right generally agrees with his attempts to sort of 
I guess you would mm-hmm. say, kind of disassociate slavery from any modern day problems going on right now. I'm not sure how many people on the right are thrilled with what is essentially a pretty harsh send up of white Southern, mm-hmm. particularly working class culture, you know, and so uh, that, that seems like it seems like people have more seized on the critiques of, uh, of, of black culture that are in this chapter and other right. chapters of the book. I, I will say, by the way, I, I don't feel that the argument for the problems that he identifies as supposedly being part of black culture, I don't think that the evidence supports the idea at all that this was a result of influence from white working class Southern culture. I think that mm. the, I, I think that the hypothesis about sort of issues that are sort of facing a lot of African-Americans today, I think it's, I think it's quite clear to me based on, you know, all the available evidence and based on intuition, you know, uh, based on logic that these problems are in fact traceable to the history of slavery in this country and the history of discrimination that followed after it, which Sol unfortunately is determined, he's pretty much determined to deny almost any modern effects of slavery, except what he sees as positive modern effects of slavery, mm-hmm. which of course is, um, it's, uh, has its whole other set of problems. So, yeah, so let me talk, let's talk a little about this inheritance kind of argument because this is really interesting to me and it's it's very interesting to me but not totally surprising that you would say that like conservatives don't love that part of the argument because as you say it is it seems like fairly critical of that redneck white culture in this kind of way now when i was you know thinking about that part of things listening to you talking about it um reading about it some it struck me that what he might actually be looking at is a family resemblance between two honor cultures. Because I mean, like I understand it, a lot of what we think of as like Southern redneck culture derives from the um, immigration inheritance of communities coming from, or at least this is one argument, right? That like they are inheriting these community uh, traditions from honor cultures in like the old country in places like Ireland and Scotland and stuff and bringing those kinds of uh, cultures over. Um, and that, you know, this is drawing, I think on, on folks like Josh's Green's arguments that like what you see with these kinds of honor cultures is they, they crop up in places where there is not reliable law enforcement. And so you might argue that like a lot of what potentially comes up in the kind of black culture that he's criticizing is reaction to the very real non-existence of like reliable uh, police or, you know, reliable law enforcement in those kinds of circumstances. So, I mean, what do you think about that sort of comparison from a historical perspective? Well, so I think I'll point out, um, I'll say, first of all, that honor culture is also was also very much a thing among the Southern elite, you know, particularly mm-hmm. uh, including those who are descended from uh, English nobility in certain cases. I would also say, I actually think that the law enforcement system in the South may have been a bit more organized and insidious than people imagined, you know, in the antebellum era. Because mm-hmm. while you didn't necessarily have what you would call a local police force of the kind that you see develop in places like New York City and Boston, you mm-hmm. do have what are what essentially amount to so so the southern states largely continue the practice of drafting young white men 
into the state militias. They largely continue that practice uh, lead in the in the years leading up to the Civil War, long after northern states have largely abandoned it. And part of the mm-hmm. reason that they do this is that these state militias function as essentially an enforcement arm, a law enforcement arm for the system of slavery. Uh, that these militias are used partly mm-hmm. to you know guard against, for example, the risk of slave rebellion. Now, it is right. true, on the other hand, that obviously if somebody was enslaved and they were on the receiving end of violence, there was almost never any legal recourse. Even after, partly to try to blunt abolitionist criticism, even after you saw southern states start mm-hmm. trying to pass some laws that officially prohibited the killing of slaves in most circumstances, these laws were set up to be almost impossible to enforce because because slaves couldn't testify against white people or over you know white owners, overseers, etc. in court. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in that sense, if a slave was on the receiving end of violence, then it, it, w- it would have made logical sense to try to handle the problem, quote unquote, on their own to the extent they handled it at, at all, rather than going to law enforcement because there was nobody, there, there certainly was law enforcement, but there was nobody that, you know, was in law enforcement that was probably going to help a slave in, you know, 1855 Georgia. But then this mm-hmm. gets into sort of the larger point, which is that, I would argue, and you, you see this in a, in a lot of other countries sort of in the Americas, I would argue that the racial disparities that we see in crime, uh, in crime rates, are mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the aggregate. Are, and it's important to you know, point out that we're talking about the aggregate here, but I would argue that these racial disparities are very much traceable to the fact that, especially under slavery, but also after slavery, African Americans were subject to a massively disproportionate amount of violence by both the state and by private citizens. And this, mm-hmm. you know, in th- this and you know, the associated trauma that it inflicts, I would argue, has led to racial disparities in crime rates. Now, the problem is, I don't think this was really the argument that Sol wanted to make, because then mm-hmm. we're sort of back where he was trying to get away from, which is pointing out slavery having an impact on the present and an impact that's not a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about this chapter then. So this the title obviously signals that he's going to be critiquing what he sees as the sort of mainstream narratives around slavery and the influence of slavery on our society. So what are the major, let's just list kind of the major misconceptions that he attacks and then we can work through them uh, individually. So there's an interesting, you know, um, I hate to ever quote William F. Buckley, because I actually think he, he was very much like a more polished version of someone like like a Rush Limbaugh or a Tucker mm. Carlson. But he did have an inner that there's a quote here that he asked uh, one of his guests one time when he when he had uh, this guy Nat Hentoff on the show that I think might apply here, where he mm. was basically he, he asked Nat Hentoff, when you're taking the position that you're taking, who do you understand yourself to be opposing? And what I mean, and I think that might be applicable here. And what I mean is that a lot of the essay is spent essentially arguing against a position, uh, arguing mm-hmm. against a, a, a myth that students generally aren't taught in schools and which almost nobody in the scholarly community is trying to promote. And so what I mean by that is Sol, one of his stated purposes of the essay, which he spends a lot of time on, is trying to debunk the idea 
that slavery was unique to Western civilization, that only black people mm-hmm. were enslaved, that only white societies practiced slavery. And the, the problem is, so, so, so he's correct that that's, a, that, that he, he's correct that that's not true. The problem is that, that there's really, most of the scholarly community is not promoting this idea. And I haven't really seen any evidence that students are being taught it in schools. Now it, now it mm-hmm. is true. I will grant that student, the average student probably isn't learning or doesn't remember a lot about the history of global slavery. But that speaks to a broader issue of students just not learning and retaining that much history, especially world history. I, I don't think there's much evidence for a conspiracy going on to try to sort of suppress the history of slavery in non-Western societies or make white societies look uniquely evil when it comes to the history of slavery. I mean, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Foner um, is sort of, the, you know, great guy, um, very, very left wing, one of the most prominent historians of 19th century America. He wrote a book called Give Me Liberty, which has been used mm-hmm. as a textbook in a lot of educational institutions. Uh, back when I taught at uh, another campus, that was actually the official uh, book that we that we were required to use for our U.S. history class. Great textbook. Foner acknowledges the involvement of African leaders and traders in the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I went to probably the most liberal high school in the Atlanta area. We learned about that. You know, so it's, um, you know, another guy that Thomas Sowell quotes, David Brian Davis, you know, that he uses as a source. David Brian Davis was a self, you know, in addition to being a very prominent historian of slavery, he was a self-described leftish Democrat who got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama. And I think Mm -hmm. this sort of, this kind of reaches its crescendo when he's talking about, he's, he's talking about this not, this issue, this issue of, you know, global slavery, African slavery, not getting any coverage. And then Mm -hmm. he mentions the reaction of people when it was covered in the New York Times. Right. So, okay, let me, let me try to play soul's advocate here. But I I will, I will, um, I will say uh, there are other myths that he tries Mm -hmm. to sort of, uh, there are other sort of quote unquote myths that he tries to address. But, mm-hmm. but he, um, if you want to sort of play soul's advocate, let's do that. And then I'll sort of, I'll sort of delve into the other things okay, that he tries to sure. respond to. Well, yeah, let's talk about this one first of all, because it is, it is the first point he makes, which is he wants to push back on this idea that whites invented, basically the idea that whites invented slavery in some substantial sense or like, now I think there are versions of this that are sort of appealing. And I'm curious to hear how you would sort of resist this. So you know, this idea of what's being taught, I, I, I do agree with you that there are at least there are alternative explanations for why students are not being taught a lot about something like um, the Arab slave trade. But I do think you could make a case, for example, that there is a conventional impression that the North Atlantic slave trade is sort of particularly brutal in its approach or execution or something like that. Um, And so part of his argument is to try to suggest that the Arab slave trade was equally as brutal. And, you know, I think this initially looks like a relative privation kind of argument and would be in a different context. But I do think there's something to the idea that if people are claiming that like white slavery has been particularly bad, 
then it might be reasonable for him to point out that other kinds of slavery have also been particularly bad. So how would you how would you sort of respond to that initial pushback? Well, with I agree in the I agree sort of in and of itself, because I actually usually when I do world history, I actually teach about the history of slavery in each of the societies that I cover. And when I've taught uh, pre 1500 history, I actually I do an entire lecture on the Arabic slave trade. So it is good to I think it is good to understand that problems in the U.S. related to slavery and even problems related to racism are not unique. Just like, you know, issues of, you know, mass incarceration, police violence, etc. are not unique. I think that the problem is that Seoul tries to debunk one unnuanced narrative by promoting his own unnuanced narrative. So mm-hmm. I th- when he starts talking about the role of the West, which is not well defined in this essay, but when he tries to talk about the role of the West in ending slavery... I think that right. that narrative becomes very unnuanced. I think that in particular, when he starts getting into talking about the fa- defending the founding fathers record on slavery, when he starts talking about when he starts trying to mm-hmm. actually critique the abolitionist movement. And it's and it's it, it, even though the abolitionist movement is sort of the best example of the fight against slavery by Westerners, when he critiques the abolitionist movement, you know, when he tries to uh, downplay any negative consequences of slavery today and tries to argue that the consequences for black people today are actually positive uh, Uh consequences from slavery. I think that outweighs any value that you can get from accurate information that he provides about global slavery, uh, mostly accurate information he provides about global slavery, because that information is access. That information is accessible in other sources that don't have all the other scholarly problems that this essay has. Fair enough. And, and I, I want to get to those later points because I do agree with you. I think that there's more to critique there. Um, but I do think there's something sort of implications wise that's worth laying out here, which is, you know, part of the reason I think Sowell focuses in on this argument about white slavery being worse is because of the policy implications regarding things like reparations, right? Like he's, I think, concerned about this idea that the narrative, the mainstream narrative is what's motivating things like the welfare state. It's what's motivating a sense of uh, noblesse oblige or whatever, some sort of moral obligation to make up for the particularly bad past crimes of white slavers in this kind of way. Um, and, and like, again, to be in, you know, defending him for a second, I do think at least we're in my part of the world, right? Conversations around things like reparations or conversations around white people giving reparations, right? Like they're viewed as the ones who need to compensate, um, which I think, you know, makes sense in our part of the world. But I think it'd be interesting. I'm curious to hear what you'd say about should there be more calls for things like reparations for the Arab slave trade or something like that? Like, is it problematic that these calls for reparations aren't being directed at other societies that have substantially profited off slavery? So I think it depends on exactly what position is being argued, because Mm -hmm. I think that we have, so I do not believe that white people as a group are responsible for the horrific effects of slavery, which are obviously still very much persisting today. I don't think any racial or ethnic group can be collectively responsible for anything, honestly. But, okay. uh, but I think mm-hmm. that the problem is 
we have to distinguish between the idea of just every white person in the United States reaching into their pocket and paying out reparations to black people, which it would that would never be enacted anyway. We have to distinguish between that idea and the concept of the U.S. government as an institution paying out mm-hmm. reparations for something that the U.S. government as an institution was partly responsible for. Now, I think mm-hmm. that I, I'm, I don't think when it comes to arguments for reparations, unless somebody is specifically arguing that only the United States should pay out reparations to the descendants of people that the United States is wronged and that you know, all other, all other societies like Germany, Japan, Turkey, etc. shouldn't have to pay out reparations, unless somebody is arguing that position, then I don't honestly think that the question of whether the U.S. was uniquely evil when it came to slavery is really, should really have much bearing on whether the U.S. government should or shouldn't be paying out reparations to descendants of former slaves. Now, mm-hmm. when you get into the idea which doesn't really have much traction, honestly, but if, you, but if somebody were to propose that the United States should pay out reparations to African countries uh, that were affected by the slave trade, then mm-hmm. it does become relevant to bring up questions of leaders and traders in those countries taking part in the Atlantic slave trade. But when you're talking mm-hmm. about paying out descendants, uh, sorry, paying out reparations to descendants of slaves, you know, individual descendants in the United States rather than paying out reparations to foreign countries, then the fact that the, the fact that there were other societies in the world that have unclean hands doesn't really get the U.S. off the hook any more than honestly, it, like any more than the argument about other countries being involved or other countries doing it could have gotten Germany mm-hmm. off the hook paying out reparations to uh, Holocaust survivors and and family members. I think that there are strong arguments against reparations, particularly if you're talking about feasibility rather than morality. But I don't Mm -hmm. think the argument about other countries doing it or other societies being involved in the slave trade, I don't think those arguments have much bearing if you're specifically talking about the U.S. government paying out Mm -hmm. reparations to to descendants of slaves. But you would agree that's sort of what's in his mind here when he's making these, like, to me, it seems like the evidence he's laying out here is supposed to be a case for why, to try to undercut a sense of moral obligation for these past crimes, essentially, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. And okay. he and he leapfrogs even past that, too, because mm-hmm. there's a difference between feeling personally responsible for something and mm-hmm. and feeling that, wow, regardless of who did it, the effects of this crime are still being mm-hmm. felt today. And p- those of us who are in a position to do something about it should try to do our best to do something about it. Or, point, you, or, right, if we, right. or at least acknowledge that the effects are there because they're mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I believe is even if there is, even if there's no solution to a problem, there can still be ill effects from not acknowledging the problem exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about some of the other sort of evidence points that he gives in this case for like, why we should lay off of white people for slavery, essentially. Um, he, you know, he, he talks about how he argues again, similar to this, we don't focus enough on the Arab slave trade. He also says that we don't focus enough on how slavery actually ended. And what he seems to present, as I understand it, is a pretty traditional, as you would say, pro-Western, that we don't really define exactly what that means, fairly pro-British account of the ending of slavery, where, you know, like the 
passionately uh, ethical British people went out and and like prevented people of color and non-Christians from, you know, engaging in slavery, which they didn't personally have any moral issues with. Um, how do you, you know, as a historian, make sense of that account? Does that seem sort of even remotely plausible? Is there something of value to this particular analysis of the ending of slavery? So I think that it's complicated, which mm-hmm. I th- and I think it requires sort of a nuanced ex- exploration of the issue, which is unfortunately the exact opposite of what we got in the essay. So um, essentially, this is what it boils down to for me. One of the most interesting political developments of the first half of the 1800s, or I mean, hell, the, the entire 1800s, is mm-hmm. the shift in you know maybe half a century or or less even the shift of Britain from sort of the, arguably the slave trading capital of the world to sort of the hub of the global abolitionist movement. But this didn't happen just by virtue of England automatically always being more advanced than every other society. This happened due to a variety of factors. You know, one of the issues that you see is that you have a lot of remarkable individual abolitionists white as well as black in England, Mm -hmm. who are heavily pushing for an end to slavery and heavily pushing for England to take a leading role in stamping out slavery abroad. You also have the British government being heavily invested in slavery for a very, very lengthy period of time. And it's not as simple. You know, one thing that I think we have to understand here, it's not as simple as saying that the people that were enslaved by English slave traders would have been enslaved in Africa anyway, because Orlando Mm -hmm. Patterson has actually argued, uh, and Orlando Patterson is somebody that, I mean, he's even, I I believe, was cited in a PragerU video. You know, he's not, he's not, you know, he's not (laughs) Professor Eshet. I think he was, like Orlando Patterson is not. like an interrogatory, like this person should be avoided kind of way. No, because he's definitely, well, because he's definitely, (laughs) he writes stuff, he writes a lot of stuff, that goes against what might be considered sort of the quote-unquote woke narrative, but he also mm. writes a lot of stuff that conservatives, if they read it, wouldn't like. And one of the things no. that he <laughs> one of the things that he argues is that Patterson basically makes the point that there's evidence that a lot of the wars that resulted in slaves being taken and sold to Europeans were embarked on largely to get slaves to sell to Europeans. So sure. if you take the English involvement out of the slave trade, it's quite possible that a lot of people who ended up being enslaved wouldn't have been enslaved. There's also the fact that, and this is further where it comes, you know, kind of the importance of distinguishing between the abolitionists and the British government. Um, mm-hmm. The You have abolitionists pushing very hard for an end to slavery. But one of the things that pushes people who are kind of on the fence in the British government is that a massive slave rebellion hits Jamaica in the early mm. 1830s. And it kind of goes back to the sort of the age-old issue that, you know, the age-old point that was made in a variety of different sort of iterations is Britain was sort of faced with the choice of abolish slavery or it will potentially abolish you, you know? And right. so that, that fear was part of the motivation for why England did end up passing anti-slavery legislation. And then England, you know, partly due to the efforts of these abolitionist activists, did do a lot of good stuff internationally trying to stamp out slavery, you know, and enforce the anti-slave trading laws. But they also, a lot of that has to be balanced against the amount of damage that they had mm-hmm. done 
leading up to that. And there's also whole issues, which I may not have time to get into now, but there's also there, there's a lot of issues about the way in which Britain went about abolishing slavery being mm-hmm. sort of more humane for the owners than it was for the slaves that the the way they did it, you know, with time delays and payouts to the owners, but not the slaves, you know, that that invites a, a lot of criticism. But I also I mean, I've I've given the British abolitionist movement a lot of credit for promoting an end to slavery globally. And I and I would argue that, you know, certainly compared to a lot of other societies that England did become more liberal on questions of slavery. But there's also kind of the issue that you run into, and this kind of ties in with Seoul sort of giving short, tri- you know, kind of giving short shrift to non-white cultures. The, the idea of hereditary perpetual chattel slavery, that mm-hmm. is not something that had been universal in all non-Western cultures until Brits started criticizing it. Uh, for example, um, most Native American societies north of the Mexican border, except for a lot of the West Coast tribes, most of these societies didn't have hereditary perpetual chattel slavery in most cases. Um, mm-hmm. There's, I'm less well, I mean, that's been actually pretty well documented. And that was actually a point that when I debated Dr. Riley that he actually agreed with me on, I, I, I would argue. Um, but, but you also, I mean, I'm less well versed on African history. But from what I've read, there were also African societies, you know, in the Upper Guinea Coast, you know, particularly uh, a lot of African societies that didn't have a, you know, sort of a large central government. So, mm-hmm. Some of those African societies also really don't seem to have been practicing large amounts of hereditary, hereditary perpetual chattel slavery until the Atlantic slave trade started. Um, and there's mm-hmm. also then the point that you run into that um, there were African political leaders who did actually try to resist the Atlantic slave trade when most of the European countries were happily taking part in it. Uh, and and this, is, this, was my, this was a minority of chiefs and kings, but there were a few that did do things like forbid their people from taking part in, you know, from assisting slave traders in any way that, that, that mm. authorized the attacking of slave ships to try to prevent them from leaving with the Did hostages. the British CIA engage in some regime, regime change well, at that point? I, it's funny. I don't know about the British CIA, but there was actually a case, I believe... I have to look at the exact country involved. I believe it would have been Portugal, but there was actually a case in the 1720s where white European slave traders actually cooperated with African leaders who supported the trade to actually oust a political leader who sure, wouldn't right. let them take part in the Atlantic slave trade. So it, you know, so it's a very yeah. complicated picture that involves a lot of unsavory people of a lot of different races who are engaging in or promoting slavery for personal gain and a lot of good people of all races who are trying to fight against it so it's a very nuanced story that we don't get there the other point um, oh yeah no problem sorry i'm getting no sorry it's okay i just want to try to get in some other like connections to this in ways that ways that i think further complicated i'm curious to hear if these are things that you sort of give credit to so we've talked previously i talked with um olafemi otaiwo on the previous episode about um, alternative economic reasons why the British might have been interested in getting rid of the slave trade, such as, you know, they were able to outcompete, you know, uh, communities that had relied on that through different means or something. And it was sort of a, an economic uh, uh, leverage and control kind of situation. And then also, you know, as I understand it, the British, even though they abolished slavery in the empire, continue to effectively fund it in places like America and that they sort of 
were big in the kind of slavery mortgage stuff that was going on during that period? Are those like other factors that you think we should take into account here when we're sort of assessing the moral culpability in this way? Well, I definitely think that we do have to consider the fact that England was definitely willing to continue to buy slave labor products from places like the American South. I think mm-hmm. that that, you know, and on, on, on the flip side, I tend to be, a, I tend to try to give an element of grace to people who oppose slavery, but purchase products that may have been made from slave labor, because I, I do understand that while that's an extreme example, that in every, it, that it's almost impossible in any society to practice totally ethical consumption. But I think that the, I think that the bigger kind of, I guess, the, the bigger issue with that is that England became so, I guess you would say, dependent on Southern uh, products like cotton for a period of time, mm-hmm. that there was actually a question about whether or not they might lend some sort of support to the Confederacy during the Civil War. Now, they ended up not doing mm-hmm. that. But the fact that they had gotten that financially dependent on slavery in the South is sort of a chilling, is a, is a chilling thing. And th- there's also the fact that they did, there were, there were cases of, situ- I guess you would call it kind of loophole abuse, because for mm-hmm. a significant amount of time after Britain outlawed slavery, the East India Company didn't always follow the law in territories that they controlled, really? you know, and, and they were doing, and, and the British East India Company, while the while the British government wasn't really running those territories initially, the British East India Company was very much a corporation that was supported by the British government. And then if you if you yeah, get to the late in, 1800s, inseparable to it at some point, it seemed like, right? Oh, totally. And like, if you if you get to the late 1800s, there's even cases where, you know, it's not it's not legally slavery. So I, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. call it slavery, but they do, the British, when they take basically control of Egypt in the late 1800s, there's a point at which like 80 something thousand Egyptians, I think, are being basically forced to work on public works programs. You know, right. so, that, so there's a lot of, and then of course, there's just the fact that if you want to talk about which country with like, you know, with an organized central government that's still around today, if you want to talk about what, which country has the best record on slavery, it's probably Haiti because Haiti, mm. I mean, Haiti topples the slaveholding elite. And, you know, again, while there's, while they engage in loophole abuse when it comes to forced labor, you know, kind of like the British and the United States and other societies do, Haiti never reinstates any kind of like official slavery system after the Haitian Revolution in the early 1800s. And the only mention that I could find in Sol's essay every time I look, every time I reread it, the only reference I could find to, to uh, Haitian abolition was Sol saying that a bloodbath followed emancipation in Haiti. But the way that it's worded almost makes yeah. it sound like the French were nice enough to free the slaves and then the slaves killed them in the revenge. They started murdering people. <laughs> rather, yeah. than the, rather than the fact that well, it was bloody because they were trying to get themselves free because the government mm-hmm. wouldn't do it. Well, right, because Haiti kind of blasts a big hole in part of his theory. And this is the part that I really want to emphasize because it blew me away a little bit. He gives a reason for why he thinks that Europeans, as you said, sort of suddenly in the 1800s have this turn towards, you know, ethical rolling back of slavery and abolitionism takes hold. Um, And he, you know, he cites gunpowder as being the reason they're effective. But in terms of the reason that they suddenly as a society, unlike all these other societies, thought that slavery was a bad thing, apparently for the first time in history, in his view, um, is because they really love to read books. 
And he basically says that like their fixation on reading books, a trait not shared by the rest of the world, is why they become sort of ethical and pro-slavery. I'm curious if you feel like there's anything to that or like does this shade into essentially a kind of European white supremacism in terms of the way that he's viewing this narrative as being this kind of white saviors, you know, who were enlightened by the enlightenment um, going and saving the world from slavery. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it, it definitely veers into problematic territory. And if I thought that it was 100% accurate, then I wouldn't say, you know, don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have an issue with it. But I think that the, one of the things, one of the kind of the problems that we have to consider here is not only partly for reasons that we've sort of laid out, not only is it overly simplistic to say that essentially white Western societies were the only ones to ever have a problem with slavery and that every every non-white society prior to that point had been totally for slavery. Not only is that an oversimplification, but also mm-hmm. from everything I've read, I mean, I, I was actually doing research on this recently. Writing wasn't invented in Europe. Uh, printing press wasn't invented in Europe. Books weren't invented in Europe. I, I mean, there's, I mean, the first university in uh, mm-hmm. sub-Saharan Africa comes along around the same time or before Cambridge University in Cambridge, England comes along. You know, I mean, the, uh, the House of Wisdom is basically mm-hmm. like an academic hub in Baghdad in, in the Middle Ages, where basically scholars of all religions congregate and sort of, you know, pick each other's brains, you know, metaphorically. So I, you know, and I really, I think that that's an unlikely cause for things like Britain taking on a sort of a leading role in mm-hmm. in sort of the global abolitionist fight in the, you know, sort of later part of the 1800s. I think that, in, I, I do think there's probably a case to be made that in the United States, that probably anti-slavery sentiments took hold in New England more easily than they did in the South, because literacy mm-hmm. was much higher in New England. But mm-hmm. I'm not really, I, 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 I don't really buy into the idea that that would apply with Europe versus non-European societies, because mm-hmm. partly it's an oversimplification about how it's it's an oversimplification of how liberal Europe actually was, but it's also it's an oversimplification based on the fact that none of you know printing presses, writing books, none of it actually came out of Europe originally. Do you have any theories that you're more sympathetic to, like including uh, besides the ones we've already kind of? Uh, talked about so for example you know do you feel like the role that like there was a significant role for philosophers like mill and bentham who were outspoken abolitionists in terms of like actually contributing to changing public sentiment on these things oh yeah i mean i definitely think that the i definitely think that the sort of um classical liberal philosophy while most of the original classical liberal thinkers didn't necessarily have the best records on slavery i definitely (laughs) think that the enlightenment played a, a key role in sort of shifting a lot of white attitudes in, you know, once the enlightenment, once those enlightenment ideas kind of marinated long enough. But I also mm-hmm. think that one thing that has to be considered is the extent to which not only were black people extremely important in, in sort of the, the fight for emancipation, but a mm-hmm. lot of white people who became interested in emancipation were influenced by black people. You know, William Lloyd Garrison, mm-hmm. whose soul actually, you know, it, like if I was trying to if I was trying to write about if I was trying to make the case that white Americans deserve credit for ending slavery, William Lloyd Garrison would be one of the best examples that I could think of. I mean, there's very few 
white Americans who did more than William Lloyd Garrison did to promote emancipation. Mm-hmm. But Sowell has nothing but really contempt for him in that essay, which is a funny thing. But but Garrison, it, it, Garrison was originally a moderate who wanted a gradual end to slavery, followed by black people migrating to Africa. Garrison swapped out both those positions and he became an advocate of immediate emancipation and an advocate of full racial integration when he was in his mid to late 20s. But part of the reason that he shifted his views was that he started meeting and talking to black abolitionists. You know, so I think that, and and I mean, you can, you, you know, kind of the, you can see this trend further where the fact that despite how relatively small the black population in the North was, the majority mm-hmm. of Garrison's subscribers when he started the Liberator were black, you know, and I think, you know, and I think Haiti even was an influence on a lot of white abolitionists because, uh, sure. you know, Wendell Phillips, a na- guy I named my, my dog after, um, Wendell Phillips was a white Boston abolitionist who specifically used the story of Haiti to try to refute ideas of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in this same vein, you know, Soul gets into a bit of what I think is very obviously like his story trolling in the sense that like he, you know, he wants to piss people off with how he describes it. But he basically says a big part of the credit should go to what he says are conservative religious activists. He says they'd be the modern religious right. And, and as far as I can tell, he's referring to things like Quakers who were involved um, in the abolition movement. What do you think about like that portrayal of Quakers as religious conservatives? Is that like a useful insight or is that just like confusing sort of muddying the waters here? It's not at all useful. And I'm going to kind of break it down with, the history with sort of the history of Quakerism. And I will point out Mm -hmm. that today, you know, just, you know, to kind of look at sort of where Quakerism has ended up. Quakerism Mm -hmm. is a predominantly liberal faith tradition today. You know, while there's Mm -hmm. no central Quaker leadership, the uh, the you have individual Quaker groups that have been doing same sex marriages since the 80s. You know, it's not it is uh, not a conservative faith tradition, but it's to look at Quakerism in the 1700s and 1800s. I'll actually be happy to break it down looking at both 18th century Quakers and 19th century Quakers so that regardless of which one soul is referring to, we can see that it's not accurate. So some of the core principles of Quakerism included pacifism, essentially, um, which is gen- which has generally been much more associated with the left or with sort of socially liberal Americans and institutions. Uh, Quakers mm-hmm. have tended to give significantly more autonomy to women than contemporary, most contemporary faith groups did. Again, this is uh, definitely not in line with the Christian right. Uh, another key aspect of Quakerism has been the idea of sort of the inner light, of the ability of each individual to sort of ascertain God's will for themselves. That is very much at odds with the more sort of, author- you know, sort of authority-based, I-, I guess you would say, religious structures that we associate more with the Christian right. Now to give, I want to look at a couple of examples of anti-slavery Quakers from the 18th century. Benjamin Lay is believed to have been probably the first white person in the American colonies. Uh, He came to, I believe, he he came, I believe, from uh, originally, definitely originally from England. And I believe he first lived in the Caribbean and then lived in Pennsylvania. And Benjamin Lay was probably the first white American to call for immediate emancipation of all slaves. Benjamin Lay was also one of the early white Americans 
to be essentially an animal rights advocate. Uh, it would be closer to mm. say that he was the modern, that, that he was sort of the historical forerunner to a group like PETA than it would be to say that he was the historical forerunner mm. to a group like the Family Research Council. Um, he was, you know, he was also, uh, you know, he was also very much uh, against things like capital punishment. Um, another mm-hmm. example, you know, which which a lot of Quakers have historically been very, very anti-death penalty, as were a lot of abolitionists of all faith groups, and interestingly, as were a lot of 19th century radical Republicans. Uh, you know, another mm-hmm. example, uh, if you want to look at some advocates of gradual emancipation, a lot of the advocates of gradual emancipation that were Quakers in the 1700s were also much more interested in animal welfare and animal welfare than uh, most Americans would have been at the time, and certainly more so than the Christian right is today. Because in general, the Christian right has not been super fond of the idea about animals having a level of value that's anything close to people. Um, mm-hmm. But John Woolman, anti-slavery Quaker from New Jersey, uh, Woolman, when he traveled to England, didn't want to ride in horse-drawn carriages because he thought that they were inhumane. Um, Anthony Benezet, a French Quaker who migrated to the American colonies. Anthony Benezet was an outright vegetarian. Uh, and even after his doctor said it was affecting his health, he refused to do it because he, like, he refused to stop being a vegetarian because he felt that eating meat was unethical. If we transition mm-hmm. to the 1800s and we look at sort of Quaker abolitionists in the 19th century, you see that a lot of Quaker abolitionists are very much in support of causes like women's rights, you know, sort of first wave feminism, ending the death penalty, separation of church and state. You know, Lucretia Mott is a really good example of this. Uh, Lucretia Mott was anti-death penalty, uh, pro-separation of church and state, feminist, totally against all corporal punishment of children. Um, I believe I mentioned anti-death penalty. Uh, She was against the Comstock Act, which was, uh, which was essentially an obscenity law that was passed mm-hmm. in the 1800s. And she was very much theologically liberal. Uh, she, as well as other abolitionists like Garrison, very much explicitly ridiculed the idea of biblical infallibility as dumb and dangerous. Uh, to, you know, so uh-huh. you see, and that's, that's not so, so that fa- uncommon. So fair to say, not very conservative, generally speaking. It's no, like, no. I mean, yeah. and you see the same thing with other abolitionists, you know, other religious abolitionists. They're... they're you see some of them, certainly, like the Tappan brothers, who are more sort of standard evangelical Christians. But abolitionists, in many, many cases, are very much theologically liberal. You know, so, so if Sol had said that some abolitionists had been religious conservatives, then I would have agreed with him. But when he says that the abolitionist movement was driven primarily by religious conservatives, that simply doesn't hold up. Okay, fair enough. Um, so we got time for one more question, and then I can get you, gotta get you into the enlightening round. Oh, sure, sure. So, sort of final thoughts he has this final argument that i found very confused where he basically says that it's sort of a version of the slavery is not a good economic model it doesn't actually make societies richer and he gives examples of it sort of sucking up surplus wealth or value or something like that and i'm just i'm curious how we're supposed to square that with things like what you were just saying about how you know, lots of countries profited substantially off of the slavery that was taking place in the American South, for example. And also he acknowledges that, you know, the wealth extraction can occur, but it goes into private hands more often than like enriches governments. But that doesn't that sort of just ignore that like societies often draw their power on the off the wealth of like the people who live in them and like identify with their particular 
social you know choices or something like that well this is an interesting one this is probably the most reasonable portion of the essay which which does not mm-hmm. surprise me because soul his background is economics you know he was not mm-hmm. a historian you know he or he or he didn't have like, like he didn't really have i don't think much formal training as a historian um and i'm i've because economics has not been sort of my forte I'm always a little bit more conflicted about whether or not slavery was profitable for the societies that engaged in it. I think you can certainly argue that industrialization or forms of contract labor may have actually been more profitable for societies that uh, used those sort of economic modes instead of slavery. Uh, I think that it's one of the things that kind of complicates matters is it can be a little bit tricky to assess, particularly when you're trying to use uh, metrics from the 19th century. It can be a little bit tricky to assess which states, like which parts of the country, were the wealthiest. I've honestly heard conflicting things about which parts of the country were the wealthiest prior to the Civil War, particularly when... Isn't it, I, just, I just want to jump in there, though. Isn't it also a little problematic to, to say, you know, industrialization versus slavery when you have these all these examples arguably that like industrialization needs slavery um that like you know the cotton gin still needs a bunch of this forced labor out in these fields so like the the industrialization exists and survives and bootstraps on top of the slavery model that's an interesting point and i think it depends partly on how you define industrialization because you can if you define it as the cotton gin you know, or, or if you include the cotton gin as an example of that, then I think that's certainly correct. If you're talking about more like the sort of New England factory model, then I think mm-hmm. that in that sense, slavery and industrialization don't tend to go together. Although here's the interesting complicating factor. Um, the If you look at the sort of the way that the North and South economically interacted, there mm-hmm. is an argument to be made that the Southern, essentially the Southern agricultural system of slave labor and yeah. the northern industrial system created a very profitable, essentially, trade system where each sure. set of societies would essentially swap out the goods that the other society couldn't or wouldn't produce. Now, I I will defer to the people who are sort of have more of a broader base of economics on whether or not slavery was profitable, but I definitely think that's a complicating factor. And it explains why anti-slavery sentiments in the north were more popular in rural areas. Where there weren't, where you didn't have as many industrial moguls who were heavily right. financially tied with the South, right? And why the North, in many ways, resists the attempts at abolition because it needs cheap cotton just the way that Britain does. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely that. That's a that's a good point, you know, because a lot of the a lot of the Northern business interests are not sympathetic mm-hmm. to the abolitionists. I mean, you can find some industrialists mm-hmm. that are, but a lot of them are not. So I think it's a tricky issue, and it would definitely be something that. I I am willing to acknowledge that there are people with more of an economic background that probably mm-hmm. have are are, are probably uh, can probably give a better answer to that than I can. But I think that that's honestly, if that had been the only portion of the essay, I probably wouldn't have signed on to debate it. But it was sort mm-hmm. of it was a halfway reasonable thing, kind of buried in a lot of very dangerous and inaccurate ideas. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, I always like to wrap up before I do the enlightening round, just to give people a bit of resources for if they want to dive a little deeper into this. Are there any resources that you would recommend in particular that you found uh, valuable when when trying to hash through these claims? 
Well, you know, I think one claim, if you want to talk about, so if you want to talk about um, specifically claims about sort of Western versus non-Western slavery, I think a really good text would be Slavery and Social Death by Orlando Patterson, because it gives, you know, cosine as always. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it gives, I think, a more sort of nuanced look at slavery versus non-Western slavery than, um, Mm. you know, than uh, Soul gives. There's uh, some some good articles by Winston McGowan and Walter Rodney about sort of African slavery and slave trading. And I'm not saying that those articles, you know, I'm not as strong on African history. So I'm certainly I'm open to criticism if people say that they have issues with those articles. But I think it's good to read those articles and then see, you know, look and see if you can find other things, which I've been trying to do. Look and see if you can find other sort of scholars who may have debated them and see who you find more persuasive when it comes to when it comes to the founding fathers in slavery uh one really good resource that i would recommend is and i want to make sure i get the exact title right uh hold on because i'm so, so with a lot of books i read sometimes i get like one word of the title wrong and that can throw off the google search but there yes there is a book called slavery and the founders race and liberty in the age of jefferson by uh, paul finkelman uh and it gives a really good it's sort of the antidote to a lot of what soul says about the founding fathers and there's definitely there's a lot of good books you know if you check out you know um the struggle for equality the abolitionist legacy um of one blood by paul goodman you know there's there's a lot of good books about the abolitionist movement that i think you know ironically really sort of counter some of the charges that soul levels where because he really for somebody who's touting the west role in ending slavery he has almost nothing positive to say about white abolitionists he pretty much trashes mm. them he pretty much trashes them in the essay because he's trying to steel man why somebody like thomas jefferson wouldn't want to give up slavery mm-hmm. all right fair enough that's a lot of good resources so i appreciate that uh, unfortunately that means i now have to torture you so I this is <laughs> all right this is the enlightening round Enlightenment comes from within. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? That is all you're, you've done this before, but that is all you get to do. Uh, you can't hedge, you can't define, et cetera, et cetera. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. All right. So first of all, just to check, is anything real? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're... <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's. I think there's a lot of real stuff out there. Okay. All right. So let's find out what is real. So real or not real? The external world. I, I do think the external world is real. Yeah. I, I've never, I've never found them. Okay. No, no, no. Sorry. All okay. right. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Real-ish. Mm. <laughs> real or not real? I'm going to say real. Okay. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Real. Races? Not real. Species? Real. Morality? Real. Rights? Real. Knowledge? Real. God or gods? I'm going to say real. Society? Real. Money? Not real. Numbers? Not real. Fictional characters? Not real. Holes? 
like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. Beauty. Not real. Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Real. All right. You survived. How do you feel? I, uh, you know, I feel, I feel all right. I, um, I, I will say with, um, just, you know, to kind of clarify this point, while I believe that gender is real and sex is real, there's not a, there's not a one-to-one correlation. Like there's cases okay. where somebody's gender doesn't match with their sex. You know, there's a, there's yeah. a, re- there's a reason I say in my uh, Twitter bio blocked by white supremacists, anti-gay activists and TERFs. No problem. We can, uh, if you're cool to stick around for a little bit, we'll do a little bit of bonus content. We can talk oh, about yeah, sure. which of those of the, in the list there, do you feel like are the most challenging for you personally? Uh-huh. Um, but before we get to that, um, do you want to let folks, uh, non-patrons know where they can find you on the Twitters and whatnot? Oh yeah, sure. So, um, I am on Twitter at minority of one seventy five. Uh, you can uh, find my podcast uh, on SoundCloud under you know Minority of One or Charles Boyd if you want to search that. Um, I'm at uh, charlesohalloranboyd.wordpress.com you know for a, a blog that I occasionally update. And uh, yeah, I th- I'd say that sort of covers um, where you want to uh, where you want to find me. I um, usually like to get to know people a little bit better before I give them my uh, pr- personal Facebook account. So <laughs> <laughs> good choice. Good yeah. Choice. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and chatting and thanks for folks to for listening. And, you know, if you want to hear a little bit more, come join us on Patreon and hang around a little bit extra. Cool, cool. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our Archon-level patrons, Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T., any election lawyers want to pioneer a case on the CA Fair Maps Act? Fix the vote. Dude, new year, new 364 days to go, 357 rather, and Lauren Shielding. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editors, Louisa Lyons's Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus VIP content. Most of all, Thanks to your history, you are the void, and the void is you.